Before I begin today's uh, recording, I just wanted to take a moment and talk about something uh, that's happening in the, in the news. This will not be a news podcast. I'm going to start doing a uh, series of history podcasts on uh, slavery, race, and sort of the reckoning with it from a historical perspective. But I wanted to take a moment and talk about something that's in the news uh, that feels relevant uh, today, and maybe I should talk about for at least a minute um so we are withdrawing from afghanistan and uh it's a disaster as would be expected um there's a lot of different commentary on it a lot of different ways you can look at it people are calling it a saigon like moment i don't really think i don't know i find historical analogies always disturbing when people use them in politics because i think the thing a historian would tell you is history doesn't repeat itself and you can't you can use it as a guide in some ways but to use it as a comparison for political objectives it's not really what history is for um so i don't really like the comparisons to vietnam i mean they're different countries different presidents different times different military structures size of the military is different the forces at hand are different terrorists versus communists or whatever you want to call what the north koreans are there's just a lot of or north uh, sorry vietnamese are were and there's just a lot of 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 comparisons here and i i don't think that's always a good thing to do because i don't think it always holds now that being said some of the things that i've noted you know some people are like well why couldn't we just leave a force there that was small to maintain stability you know i think what what people are not realizing here is that this is proof our government lied to us for 20 years. If we had left a force there, it would have made true all those things that people have said for a long time about we want to be the police of the world. I don't want to do that. We spent a lot of money over there. There's a lot of corruption. It's just wasteful. And what are we getting for it? People can say stability. And maybe that's true. But... Is it really stable if it collapses in three weeks? I doubt it. People are assuming there's going to be another terrorist attack. Is it possible? Of course. But I think people are forgetting that we are now aware that terrorist attacks are a real thing. And that makes it much harder to pull one off. Does it mean it's not going to happen? No. But I just think people are assuming right out of the gate we're going to have a 9-11 again someday. And it's not as simple as that. The government's aware that terrorists can do something like that now they're not going to be so stupid to fall for it again um so i just you know i think people are overblowing that portion of it there are people defending the fact that we're there because of women and children you know especially women's rights i get that but at the end of the day how many countries can you really think of where an invasion force went in and forced freedom on everyone and it worked doesn't really happen that way people have to choose to be free for themselves and if the afghan people as a whole can't figure that out then maybe they don't want to be free and people don't like hearing that but democracy is something you choose it's not something you give to someone else so i think people are are forgetting that fact you know the afghan people if they really wanted to be free their government would have done more 
to shore themselves up and make this country more stable. And they never did. This is proof. And I think people forget our government has been saying things are going great. You know, we will win. Victory is inevitable. I mean, there's all these quotes from generals over the years and politicians. And the reality is they lied. And people don't want to admit that. They don't want to talk about it. But that lie matters because it means no matter how long we stay there, it'll always be a lie. There's no plan to make this better. There was never a plan to make Afghanistan a stable, Western-style democracy. It was never going to happen. And so the idea that we could just stay there long enough to do that, it's just not true. And people have to accept that. Sometimes policies have bad outcomes. And there's nothing you can do about that. Some things have to be decided like adults. You know, this this hystericalness about it reminds me of a child not getting their way. We can't get everything we want. Afghanistan was always going to be a disaster. And stamping our feet and crying about it like little kids wanting a candy bar and mom says no. You know, Americans are used to getting whatever they want, and the reality is that doesn't always happen. Foreign policy is a mess sometimes, and we can't know the repercussions of what we do down the road. So 20 years ago when we invaded Afghanistan and tried to reconstruct the government and all this stuff and gave a generation of of little girls freedom, the very invasion sowed this moment. You know, um, this was always going to be the outcome, whether now or in 20 more years. And so really, by invading, we basically made it so that a generation of girls would know what it is to be free, only to be disappointed. And I just think that's why you shouldn't go off on military adventurism. And people are going to have to learn to accept that America can't control everything. Anyway, that's just my thoughts on Afghanistan. Um, You know, uh, it's sad and it sucks that this is happening uh, in terms of what's happening to the Afghan people, particularly women. But it was also predictable and we never came up with a plan for it, apparently, and our government just lied to us that whole time. So, I mean, that's on us, you know. And the American people shouldn't respond by saying, give us 20 more years. Because this is going to, nothing's going to change in 20 years. The government's not going to come up with a plan. So, anyway, on to the show. What does it mean to be free? Is it the right to do whatever you want? Is it the responsibility to make good choices when no one is looking? Does it mean being able to use the fruits of one's own labor to live a good and comfortable life? I've been pondering these questions a lot over the last five years. My politics has changed so much in that time. I've gone from being a Democrat in 08 to a progressive to what I would call a Christian anarchist at this point. And that evolution has made me think a lot about these uh, questions. They're the sort of timeless questions even Plato asked in The Republic. It especially becomes a difficult question as I consider the emergence of a new America that's frankly far more diverse than what has existed in the past. A thought experiment comes to mind. What, what would an American say if you look at him or her 
and you take them and transported them to our own time. You know, Americans from the past. Of course they'd be shocked by a great many things. The internet, vaccines, public education, the literacy rate, cars, planes. It'd be too much, of course, but one has to ask what they would make of all the different races, cultures, creeds, and political views that exist in our nation today. The founders would be shocked. One has to wonder what they would say. <clears throat> well, quote, you know, Ryan, this was not what we envisioned. Japanese working alongside Mexicans and whites. I mean, Mexico wasn't even a country back during the revolution, after all. Yet if I asked Thomas Jefferson what he makes of the end of slavery, he might have a sense of relief. Ryan, I, I, I never thought the nation could survive the end of slavery. Not because it's some glorious institution, but to think slave owners gave up their slaves willingly. My, my. Of course, they didn't give up their Americans, their fellow Americans willingly, but rather were forced by every drop of blood they paid during the Civil War. Bruce Levine, a historian and the author of the superb Half-Slave, Half-Free, captures the impact of the Civil War quite well when he says, quote, The American Civil War was, by general agreement, the most important event in the history of the United States. End quote. Some might disagree with that, of course. Ryan, what about the atomic bomb or Civil Rights Act or the revolution itself? To be sure, the country has had plenty of impactful moments, but consider Levin's explanation. Quote, it altered the structure of American society more profoundly than had the revolution. With the exception of the Haitian Revolution, it was the most thoroughgoing and far-reaching assault on bound labor to occur in the Western Hemisphere. It not only dethroned the once dominant planter elite politically, but eliminated it as a slave-holding class by emancipating four million human chattels. End quote. Indeed, one can argue, and I certainly would, that the American Revolution was more a revolution of one elite or aristocracy against another than some kind of populist revolt or freedom for all. It did not end slavery federally, and even many property, non-property owning whites would not get to vote in this new republic. And I think that unlike the Haitian Revolution, the Civil War was primarily a war of white Americans against white Americans, who fought first to save the fledgling na nation, but eventually the war came to evolve and be about ending slavery. In a later part of this history, I will attempt to convey the stories of some of the Unionists, black and white, who came uh, to view the war as one of liberation. But for now, just know that there are many stories of letters going home to family, hoping against hope that the war would be the death knell of slavery. In the biop biopic Lincoln, starring Daniel Day-Lewis, two young black soldiers are talking to the president, and as the conversation ends, one of the soldiers walks away reciting the Gettysburg Address. That's the thing about the Civil War. Many Americans think of World War II as the quote-unquote good war. But in truth, if America has ever fought a just war, and to be clear, as a Christian pacifist, that's a difficult thing to convince me of, but as a historian, I understand the argument about just wars. I would say it was the Civil War. Lincoln believed the war would bring a new birth of freedom, an entirely new country in a way. More on that later. For me, when I think of what the Civil War meant for African Americans... For my ancestors, um, who are white, of course. For me and my son, it brings tears of joy and hope to my eyes. What's more beautiful than freedom? Further still, the Civil War completely changed our society 
and the might and power it gave the North transformed the country from an agrarian slaveholding republic to an industrial powerhouse that would not only become the preeminent world power, but also defeat not one but two massive military powers in World War II, as well as communist Russia. Had slavery not been defeated, who knows what kind of world we live in today. Only America had the might to end both Nazism and Japanese hegemony in the Pacific, only to pivot immediately after the war to the Soviet Union. I know, I know. A lot of people will say I am being far too simplistic. Of course, it's not as easy as all that. My only point is that the impact of slavery has echoes that transformed America and thereby transformed the world. There are always myriad factors, especially when we talk about centuries of time. But one cannot deny what the end of slavery has meant for America, and America being the rich and most powerful nation in human history, what the end of American slavery has meant for the world. I digress. Levin goes on, quote, The war also confirmed formal civic equality on the free people. Indeed, as former Confederate General Richard Taylor observed in 1865, quote, Society has been completely changed by the war. The French Revolution did not produce a greater change in the Aegean regime than this has in our social life, end quote. Changes introduced in the federal con constitution and governmental practice have left their mark on our economics, culture, politics, and law down to the present day, end quote. In case anyone doubts the impact of slavery and the Civil War, we need only look at how debates over Confederate statues and the Confederate flag have gone. And I want to read, just to prove my point, something from a, a great history book. And again, this is Bruce Levin's Half Slave, Half Free. And this is in the preface, the very beginning. Quote, Indeed, the subject repeatedly appears in newspaper headlines and becomes the focus of highly charged uh, political conflicts. In the year 2000, for example, Congress mandated the National Park Service to encourage Civil War battle sites to recognize and include in all of their public displays and multimedia educational presentations the unique role that institu the institution of slavery played in causing the Civil War. But then angry modern champions of the Confederacy promptly declared a war of their own on the politically correct Park Service. Also in 2000, an NAACP-led boycott of South Carolina finally induced that state's legislature to remove a Confederate flag from atop its state house, only to raise it in another prominent location. Meanwhile, Mississippians and Georgians argued among themselves about whether to remove the Confederate insignia from their own states. In 2003, the decision to erect a statue of Abraham Lincoln in downtown Richmond, Virginia, once the capital of the Confederacy, provoked a new storm of protests. Each of these heated controversies and others have mobilized thousands and touched millions, and each of them drew on the very distinct views of what the Confederacy and the Civil War were all about. End quote. As we live and breathe, slavery still has a hold over the country, it seems. But it's not just slavery I want to talk about. It's the entire story of our racial progress and often lack of progress. I spend a great deal of time on Twitter. Many conversations on that site on race are useless because social media does a poor job allowing for nuanced, long-form discussion. However, on occasion, I find really good thought-provoking tweets. One that really got me thinking was about the idea of being a multicultural republic. 
Anyone who follows politics closely knows that we deal a lot with things like the so-called wokeism these days. And indeed, it's an ideology that has become prominent in certain elite circles, uh, particularly in academics, and it's beginning to seep into the suburbs to a certain extent. It's not a good ideology, of course, but the tweet in question crystallized a question that has been growing in me for a while now. What if in the process of becoming the uh, first multicultural republic, the old ways we did things as a nation no longer suffice, similar to the way our culture worked before the Civil War? In other words, because we are becoming something entirely new, what if we need new ideas, new ways of, of thinking? Perhaps new ideas, new ways of thinking are needed. We see this all the time now. When something happens that one or another political faction finds detestable, they respond with fascist, communist, Nazi, Marxist, socialist. But what if, like in the 19th and early 20th century, we're entering a new phase in our story, where we have to find new terms to deal with what we are seeing? We're in completely uncharted waters here, folks. Never before has a free nation so tried to construct itself out of a hodgepodge of cultures and beliefs and political factions. And yet... It kind of works outside of the political realm, doesn't it? We respect each other's freedom. Enough to live and let live. That's why my state, the Bay State, can have the mainland's largest Puerto Rican population, legal marijuana, and a public health system for the neediest among us. While Wyoming might as well be an entirely different nation. And that's okay. So what's the problem? Why am I doing this series of podcasts? The amount of disinformation I've seen on our racial history on all sides is staggering, especially as it pertains to African-American white relations. There are those who argue, quote, Ryan, nothing has fundamentally changed, end quote. I've seen this. People have said this to me. Others continue to argue that slavery is the source of all the ills the African-American community face, while others insist that African-Americans are to blame for their problems. And of course, we still have racists and supremacists in our midst. Not only that, but our failure to grapple with our history has led to all kinds of confusion. Debates over CRT and the meaning of our founding rage without any kind of historical grounding. Amidst all that, we now see discussions uh, about new holidays emerging, Juneteenth, as well as new historical dis discussions such as the massacre of African Americans in Tulsa in 1921, as well as politics changing, criminal justice reform, the nation is changing rapidly, and I want to leave something behind so my kids and grandkids can understand this moment. The crossroads between an old America and a new one. Most importantly, I don't want this new America to be stillborn. Perhaps it's arrogant to say, but if the human race wants to survive the 21st century and to expand into space, America will need to be part of that, and we cannot do that while being at each other's throats. My hope is that by having more and more people being willing to discuss our history, we can start to move forward. At the very least, we cannot deny that race, particularly the experience of certain parts of the African-American community, is having an impact on us today. Glenn C. Lowry captured this you know, 23 years ago in an essay he wrote about the importance of the African-American experience in our national life uh, when he said, quote, The United States of America a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to, to the proposition that all men are created equal, began as a slave society. What can rightly be called the original sin of slavery has left an indelible print on our nation's soul. A terrible price had to be paid in a tragic, calamitous civil war 
before this new democracy could be rid of the most undemocratic institution. But for black Americans, the end of slavery was just the beginning of our quest for democratic equality. Another century would pass before the nation came fully to embrace that goal. Even now, millions of Americans recognizably of African descent languish in societal backwaters. What does this say about our civic culture as we enter a new century? But Lowry continues that there's also hope. Quote, this sharp contrast between America's lofty ideals on the one hand and the seemingly permanent second-class status of the Negroes on the other put the onus on the nation's political elite to choose the nobility of their civic creed over the comfort of long-standing social arrangements. Ultimately, they did so. Viewed in historic and cross-national perspective, the legal and political transformation of American race relations since World War II represents a remarkable achievement, powerfully confirming the virtue of our political institutions. Official segregation, which some Southerners as late as 1960 were saying would live forever, is dead. The caste system of social domination enforced with the open violence has been eradicated. Whereas two generations ago, most Americans were indifferent or hostile to blacks' demands for equal citizenship rights, now the ideal of equal opportunity is upheld by our laws and universally embraced in our politics. A large and stable black middle class has emerged, and black participation in the economic, political, and cultural life of this country at every level and in every venue has expanded impressively. This is good news. In the final years of this traumatic, exhilarating century, it deserves to be celebrated. End quote. The misinformation and misunderstanding of our history is having a clear impact on our national psyche. On one side is a left that views America with rage and disdain. There are some in the left who view America as an evil nation. And on the right, the desire to ignore all the wrongdoing we have done as a nation has resulted in the hyper-nationalist desire to ignore our worst traits and moments. But capturing our history accurately can help us figure out where we have been and where we are going. Take our Constitution. William Lloyd Garrison, that fiery abolitionist, saw the Constitution as a pact with Satan himself. Nationalists today see our nation as the hope of all the world. But the masterful historian Don E. Fehrenbacher pointed out in his groundbreaking book, The Slaveholding Republic, that we are neither all good nor all bad. Instead, he argues quite convincingly that the founders were neutral on the question and had hoped that they could reach a brief compromise as the nation transitioned out of slavery. The cotton changed all of that, of course, and the slaveholding South solidified around slavery over the next 80 years. If we accept Fehrenbacher's analysis, how might we change our view of America? The founders were flawed, to be sure, but not the evil men some of the left think of. Nor are they exactly the heroes conservatives argue they were. They were brilliant and capable human beings that thrived in part because slaves gave them the time and wealth to, do, to be so. What does that mean for us as a nation today? If our nation was not birthed either as a good or evil nation, what are we? That is the question the founders hoped future generations could answer. Every new generation adds its own chorus, and over the centuries, we have added more voices to the din of debates. Ira Berlin puts the complexity of this debate about our nation's founding and the meaning of America excellently. Just as it was no accident that Thomas Jefferson wrote, All men are created equal, it is most certainly no accident that the greatest spokesman for the realization of that ideal, from Richard Allen through Frederick Douglass, W.E.B. Du Bois to Martin Luther King Jr., 
were former slaves and the descendants of slaves. Only by understanding the generations of Americans who spent their lives in captivity can we fully appreciate the generations of Americans who struggled for freedom. End quote. Nicole Hannah-Jones, someone I don't generally admire, does make a good point, though she completely messes up the delivery, when she says by fighting for their freedom, African Americans became the most American of all. I suspect if she could have that statement picked apart, she would say she's trying to get to the same point Berlin does. By understanding why African Americans have fought so hard for freedom and equality, we can define what it means to be American, regardless of race, sex, class, or creed. The American story is one of various groups vying for a seat at the table. And rather than that table getting smaller because of the number of seats popping up, the table has expanded to allow room for everyone. It's a beautiful, powerful story. The kind that the Soviet Union could not defeat, and that if I were a betting man, I would say China is not going to be able to beat either. But Americans suffer from split personality disorder issues, as Berlin also points out. Quote, For some 300 years, Americans have situated their own history in terms of the struggle between freedom and slavery, and freedom's triumph. It thus should not be surprising that even at the beginning of the 21st century, 130 plus years after slavery's legal demise, slavery continues to play a part in American life as Americans discover that their national buildings were constructed by slaves, their great cities are underlaid with the bones of slaves, and their greatest heroes and heroines were slave owners and slaves. Coming to terms with slavery, slavery's complex history is no easier in the 21st century than it was in centuries past. Many of us do admire both slaveholders and former slaves. Some of my personal American heroes include George Washington, a slaveholder, Frederick Douglass, a slave, Abe Lincoln, a racist perhaps, FDR, who neglected black Americans to secure the Southern Democrats' support, MLK, who himself was imperfect, and John Brown, who is of frankly questionable sanity. These are only a few, but one gets the feeling that to be American is to be divided. Historians have various views of the matter of this bipolar challenge. Edmund S. Morgan, historian and author of The Profound American Slavery, American Freedom, argues that, quote, what then was the relationship between slavery and freedom? Our own society demonstrates that there be no need, uh, that there need be no relationship, excuse me. The gradations among us include the presence of the extremely rich alongside the extremely poor. We have no slavery recognized by law, but we once did, and human relations among us still suffer from the former enslavement of a large portion of our predecessors. Indeed, the freedom of the free, the growth of freedom experienced in the American Revolution, depended more than we like to admit on the enslavement of more than 20% of us at that time. End quote. In short, men like Jefferson could not have found the time to fight for independence had they not enslaved Americans working their fields while they studied the writing of men like Locke. Karen and Barbara Fields in their powerful book, Racecraft, argue that, quote, Racism and class inequality in the United States have always been part of the same phenomenon. Afro-Americans began their history in slavery, a class status so abnormal by the time of the American Revolution that it required an extraordinary ideological rationale, which then and ever since has gone by the name race to fit plausibly into a supposedly Republican institution, end quote. Their point being, the idea of slavery was so 
as a class status was so abnormal, so odd, that race had to take a place alongside slavery to justify it. Albert Murray has a very compelling take in The Omni-Americans, explaining, quote, It's all too true that the Negroes, unlike the Yankee and the backwoodsmen, were slaves whose legal status was that of property. But it, also, it is also true that they were slaves who were living in the presence of more human freedom and individual opportunity than they or anybody else had ever seen before. That the conception of being a free man in America was infinitely richer than any notion of individuality in the Africa of that period goes without saying. End quote. What a thought-provoking idea. That had the African slave remained in Africa, their view of freedom would have been colored by the cultural or tribal identity they grew up in, and that it would have been vastly different and perhaps smaller, is not only counterintuitive, but also a very unpopular idea in certain circles today. But nevertheless, to live alongside free men, who do almost anything they want, would have been the kind of fuel that spurred new ideas about freedom. Without slavery, does Frederick Douglass develop such potent arguments on freedom? Does the Frederick Douglass of West Africa ever write something like what the 4th of July means to a slave? Or that Abraham Lincoln was both the white man's president, but also the black man's as well? That is not to say slavery is good or that it did something good for African Americans. It was an evil, aberrant institution that went the way of the dodo for good reason. Rather, what I am attempting to convey is that the complexity, nay the confusion, that freedom and slavery can grow alongside one another even with the same, within the same person. Consider the drug ad addict. Many addicts are slaves to their drug of choice. They're also unburdened by the sense that they should be responsible for holding steady jobs with normal lives, with well-manicured lawns and two cars in the driveway. Even within our own souls, we grapple with slavery and freedom. I had a professor of theology who once said that somehow mankind has free will, and yet God gets God's way. His view, of course, are not only his, but still a compelling thought for those of us that believe in such things. The point is, you can have a weird situation where freedom develops alongside slavery. And that a slave, an enslaved people can develop strong ideals of freedom because they have something to compare their own lives to. Murray continues, quote, the slaves who absconded to fight for the British during the Revolutionary War were no less inspired by American ideas than those who fought for the colonies. The liberation that white people wanted from the British, the black people wanted from white people. As for the tactics of the fugitive slaves, the Underground Railroad was not only an innovation, it was also an extension of the American quest for democracy brought to its highest level of epic heroism. Nobody tried to sabotage the Mayflower." End quote. And this isn't really talked a lot, a lot in media, right? People don't bring this up that things like the Underground Railroad, abolition, the d desire to be free, slaves running away, revolting against their ma masters, is fundamentally the very quintessential idea of America brought to its full flowering. People don't want to talk about that because they want people to understand that slavery was bad. And any kind of idea that you could discuss that by being enslaved, 
African Americans were able to demonstrate the most American of ideals, that being freedom. It sounds uncomfortable to say, but it's true. And I think people don't know what to do with that. It's very hard to grapple with. The idea that slavery existed and was evil, everyone accepts. And they think of revolting against it as un-American in a way, because slavery is an American institution. And I don't mean un-American as in unpatriotic. I'm saying it's based on the society of that time, you know, that the society that is sort of in charge at that time gets to define what America is and is not, right, supposedly. And that by revolting against that, African Americans were in some ways rejecting American society. But that's not really what was happening. Instead, they viewed their revolt as quintessentially American. Ira Berlin concurs and expands the idea, quote, Former slaves had no desire to deny or escape their slave past, but to use it to construct a better life for themselves and their posterity. That, above all others, is the legacy of the generations of captivity. End quote. There is also the impact of the, on the nation to consider. The South still suffered from the degradation of society, of its society, uh, due to slavery. Excuse me, it still suffers. It still is economically behind other parts of the country because of the head start the North and Midwest and West have had. Not only that, but it had a tremendous impact in its own time. Poor whites back then had nothing. And the only reason that they tolerated their society in some ways is because they knew that they, they were slaves beneath them. But slavery wasn't a system that really profited them anything. They were still poor. It really was a system designed to help the elites. Now, the other thing about it economically is that it's had a tremendous impact on our early economic development as a nation. Ed Baptist, another historian and author of The Half That Has Never Been Told, has looked closely on the impact of slavery as an economic system and argues that there are three myths around it. Quote, that slavery did not cause in any significant way the development and transformation of the U.S. economy. Number two, that slavery was not a modern or dynamic labor system. And number three, that what was happening in the South was a separate thing from the rest of the U.S. Stephen Mintz, historian of the University of Texas in Austin, expands on slavery's role in the pre-Civil War economy. Quote, in the pre-Civil War United States, a stronger case can be made that slavery plays a critical role and economic development. One crop, slave-grown cotton, provided over half of all U.S. export earnings. By 1840, the South grew 60% of the world's cotton and provided some 70% of the cotton consumed by the British textile industry. Thus, slavery paid for a substantial share of the capital, iron, and manufactured good that laid the basis for American economic growth. In addition, precisely because the South specialized in cotton production, the North developed a variety of businesses that provided services for the slave South, including textile factories, a meat processing industry, insurance companies, shippers, and cotton brokers. Now look, my point here is not to go into the entire history of slavery in this episode. Rather, my goal is to explain that several of the main themes of a modern America find their origins in slavery. 
slavery was compatible with capitalism, seeing expansion through innovation similar to other industries, and it made American merchants in the North rich. It helped fuel our economic growth early in our history. It also led to the birth of the most American of ideas, our sense of freedom. Further still, the presence of Americans of different races early on has led to continual growth in our multicultural identity. From black and white, we've expanded to include people from all around the world. Scandinavians, Hispanics, Latinos, Asians, and Pacific Islanders of all kinds, Jews and Buddhists and Muslims. What started as a very flawed experiment in the beginning has grown into something the founders never could have imagined possible. And while the story of slavery is not, only the found, is not the only foundation of our national story, it is often the most misunderstood. Because of the nature of how we teach history in public schools, little time can be spent on any one thing, and so slavery gets covered, but not in complex or deep ways. Most Americans cannot imagine the horror slaves often endured, nor could they believe that some enslaved Americans, as reformers ventured into the South after the Civil War, express feelings of affection for their former masters. It's an incredibly complex discussion, and we've really tried to boil it down in recent years, and I think that boiling down leads to a boiling down of our national discussion on race in general. And therein lies our modern problem. How can we have a national reckoning on race when we don't even know our own history properly? Those on the left seek to change the very meaning of America and to compare slavery to the concentration camps of Nazis, for example. While those on the right outright ignore the question altogether or say things like, quote, it was so long ago, how can it be possible that it's still impacting the black community today, end quote. The picture becomes even more complex when we remember that plenty of African Americans here today are not descendants of enslaved Americans. What do we do with the fact that some of the most successful ethnic groups in our country are Nigerian or Zimbabwean immigrants? Somewhere around 50% of all immigrants hail from Africa, and many are overwhelmingly successful. And what of the emerging African-American elite? People like Ta-Nehisi Coates or LeBron James or Nicole Hannah-Jones or Barack Obama. It's incredibly complicated. How can we sit there and say African-Americans all face the same institutional barriers or come from the same background you know when they just don't and how does that complicate our history and how do we separate groups out so that we know when we talk about slavery who we're talking about yet our poll parties the far right and the far left seek to simplify the story portions of the left have come to view america as a fundamentally white supremacist nation while commentators or entertainers, perhaps, like Tucker Carlson trumpet, trumpet the Great Replacement Theory on live te television. For those of you who don't know, the Great Replacement Theory is basically that Democrats want people of color to pour into the country to replace white people because people of color vote for Democrats. All while the nation continues to change. The most recent census showed the nation continuing to uh, diversify as the white population declines, though this is a bit complicated by the fact that Hispanics are being are beginning to be identified as white, similar to the Irish and, and Italians of the past, and as the nation becomes increasingly urban. Those on the right, like Carlson, seek to argue that the plan is to shrink the white population so that Democrats can win by virtue of the minority vote, 
And yet, as some of the historians and thinkers I've quoted show, some of our most American ideas come from people who are not white. Not only that, but Trump, despite how repugnant he is, won strong support in places like South Florida and the Texas border, where there's plenty of different ethnic groups. The picture, in short, is far more complicated than many Americans today want to admit. But if we are to prepare for the next stage in our growth as a nation, and remember, there's no precedent for this stage, so tread carefully. We must look at our entire story. The bad, yes, but also the good, and mostly the gray. Our failure to do so has resulted in all kinds of failures in our culture recently, and is creating strong divisions in our people. There are many examples of this. Take, for example, what happened last year just hours before George Floyd was killed. Amy and Christian Cooper converged in the Ramble, a hidden away spot in Central Park where a recorded confrontation ensued. It resulted in very little media introspection but a ton of viral videos and one person's life ruined. And when journalist Barry Weiss and Renaissance man Camille Foster sought to explain the full complexity of the story, they were attacked by other members of the media as giving space to a racist, or in Camille's case, being an Uncle Tom. One commentator on Twitter offered this gem. Why are we giving a platform to people Harriet would have left behind? Harriet as in Harriet Tubman, by the way. He was saying Camille Foster wouldn't have been freed by Harriet Tubman if he had been a slave. That is a grotesque thing to say. Never mind that Christian, a black man, had done this before, and that apparently there is some kind of feud that occurs across many parks over bird watchers and dog walkers. If you're unfamiliar with the story... Um, and you want to know more, I encourage you to seek out the podcast episode. It's over an hour long. It is incredible. It deserves a Pulitzer Prize um, for the in-depth journalism that it does. Um, it's called uh, Honestly with Barry Weiss. Look, the issue is extremely thorny. How do we deal with the gradations in question? How do we know if someone is a supremacist versus a white nationalist versus someone who enjoys the company of people who look like them but isn't racist? versus people who are no neutral? How do we deal with the fact that Hispanic and black Americans can sometimes find themselves at odds? What about black people who are racist against white people? There are people like that. Um, what about people like Majdi Wadi, who is a self-made businessman who hails from Palestine as a refugee and whom donates money to charitable causes for other refugees, but who nevertheless was canceled because his daughter sent out racist tweets when she was 15? causing his business to collapse and forcing him to fire his workers, most of whom are of color and are immigrants. The left doesn't like to talk about these sort of things, right? Because it complicates things. My side wants to be for people who are being oppressed, and it's admirable. But the problem with oppression is it all depends on the situation. And in the process of looking out for black Americans, we're canceling other people who have been oppressed. If we are trying to make the nation more diverse and true to its core promise, Wadi and his business will be central to making that happen. And yet here we are. It's enough to make one spontaneously combust, frankly. And so it seems to me that we have to start from the beginning and march forward, showing that America is neither all good nor all bad that freedom and slavery in the past have been wrapped up together, and that, if we are not careful, they will be again. 
Only this time it'll be a prison of our own minds. Unable to cross the gap between our various American identities as we slowly sink into the muck and mire of small tribal feuds that mean little compared to all that we have been through together. For a while now, many Americans of all kinds have fought and died together, bled together, voted together, marched together, to transform our nation into something more profoundly amazing. Not all good to be sure and never perfect, but an engine capable of giving us a vision of what a free society of all kinds of people might look like. When I think of the stories I've read in history books of the various peoples we've had in our country fighting alongside one another, it melts my heart. And it's a beautiful story. Beauty doesn't always have to be perfect or flawless. But what a story. Whether it be the letters home during the Civil War that start off as being angry that they're fighting a war to free African Americans, you know, white Union soldiers, but that slowly transition as they watch African American soldiers fight alongside them and realize, wow, they're as American as me. And how proud these men were at the end to have freed their fellow Americans. I'm getting emotional. How beautiful that was for them, that moment. Or how when we look at pictures of Martin Luther King marching across the bridge in Selma, how there were white people and Jewish people with him. How some of the first people to die for civil rights in the 60s and 50s were white. And that's not to trumpet, you know, how great white people are. I don't care about that. It's to show how complex and beautiful our story is and what we can become as one nation when we fight together. Nazi Germany sought to prove that white people, particularly their people, were the best. That Jews and blacks and gays and the Roma and the disabled and non-Protestants and Slavs, and people from all around the world that were different from them could not measure up. And here comes this nation of various types of people who defeated them, who ended that war. Or the stories of people who were interred in Japanese uh, internment camps during World War II a horrible thing that we did to them. And yet some of them, including a senator who recently passed away not too long ago, I forget his name, he's, he's a hero from Hawaii, who went and fought. Even though we had done that to him, he believed in this nation. And we're losing that. And it may very well be the best hope of the world. We're not perfect but the promise we give to people. You know, other nations, they may have more equality, to be sure. Others have stronger governments, and still others ensure more freedom in some ways. But none has the combined balance of size, strength, and freedom to bring the rest of the world along with it into the future. For 70 years, America has been doing that. And no, I don't mean the imperialist aspects. Even now, authoritarian states are on the rise. On the rise in China, and Myanmar, and Russia, and Belarus, and Brazil, and Hungary, and other places. Getting our story right. 
the good and the bad and the ugly, will allow us to properly assess where we have been, where we are, and where we are going, so that we can properly be the leader, not the strong man. So many free nations have needed us to be. Some people on the left fail to understand this, I think. Josh Zepps put it well on an old episode of The Fifth Column. Australian, Zepps pointed out that American wants to enter an, a new era of hiding from the world. But who else can stand up to a nation like China? And doesn't the free world need that na- nation? Not a bully, but someone who will finish a fight when others cannot, so that individual, individual liberty never again fades from the earth. In short, we've come too far to turn back now. Knowing the history of slavery and its aftermath will only make us more capable of moving forward. And frankly, all sides could use the review.